A reading from Exodus 1, 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's my privilege to be considering God's word with you this morning. But before we go any further, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, uh, we pause in your presence um, because we never want to to think of you as someone who is distant, who are just speaking of as some sort of subject, but that you are here with us. We are in your presence. We are your people. And as is um, our joy every week, we come now uh, to spend time listening to you as we consider your word. And so we ask for your help. As your spirit is present among us, we ask that your spirit would enable me to be able to speak faithfully to your word and clearly for the benefit of all of us. And we ask that you would help us as we are listening and thinking and applying your word to our hearts and our lives, uh, that you would speak to us and that you would make us more and more into your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Hamilton has come to Chicago. I don't know if that means anything to you. It means a lot to my family because my kids have really gotten into this musical. If you are not familiar with it, it is kind of a cultural sensation. It's won all sorts of Tony Awards. It is a, believe it or not, rap musical that tells the story of Alexander Hamilton, one of our founding fathers, and it's like sold out for the next 10,000 years. It's incredibly popular. And it's an interesting question to ask why it's so popular. I'm sure part of it is just that it's, it's very well done. It's very cleverly written. The music is really enjoyable. But I wonder if there's another element as well. We are, I think, we would all agree, at a time in our country where we're a little unsure of who we are. There is a, a confusion about what it means for us to be our particular nation. And there's something, I think, about returning back to our story back to even the very beginning when everything was formed that can be orienting, that people can look to to kind of say, oh yeah, this is who we are. This is what it means to be us because who we are is largely shaped by our story. So our church in the last few weeks has begun this project to explore what is the story that holds the Bible together. And we're doing that not just because we want to be Bible scholars, we're doing that because we want to understand what the story is, the story that God is involved in, his mission to the world, because that's what the Bible is about. 
And as we come to understand this story, we come to understand our story as well. Because the story of God's mission, the story of salvation, is a story that's also about us. Now, there have been a number of ways that this story of salvation has been told. In fact, probably in the last 50 or 60 years, as people have tried to think through, how do I articulate this story well to people who don't know it? There's been a somewhat common way that this story has been told in really succinct fashion. You hear it a lot of times in like evangelistic tracts. Maybe you're familiar with some of them, like Evangelism Explosion or The Roman's Road. Probably the most famous of these is The Four Spiritual Laws, and it tells a story. It says, you know, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. All of us sin, and sin has separated us from God. Jesus is God's provision for our sin. Through him we can know and experience God's love and plan for our life. And so, fourthly, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord so we can experience God's love and plan for our lives. That's telling a story. And, and this story is, is a pretty common framework that people use when they're trying to explain the story of salvation. God is good. He made us. We sinned. Jesus died for us, and if we personally believe in Jesus, we'll be saved. Now, let me say, that is true. Every word of it is true. This is incredibly important, and it is not my intent this morning to any way negate or say there's something unhelpful about this way of telling the story, but what I do want to say is if we see that as the story of salvation, it's deficient. It's not including everything. Of course, it can't include everything, but it's missing some important parts. If you think about it, when you think about how it correlates to the Bible, basically it's talking about Genesis 1 and 2, creation, Genesis 3, sin, and then you jump all the way to like Matthew 26, Jesus' death, as if everything in between is not, you know, if we had a better editor, maybe the Bible would be a lot shorter. Again, I'm not trying to denigrate this. Of course you have to make things succinct, but there are some really important things that are missed when this is the only story of salvation we know. And one of them is that when God saves, he's not just saving individuals. He is saving a people. The story of salvation is not just about us personally coming to know our sin and be saved. The story of salvation is God taking you and you and you and all of us and bringing us together in this community who knows each other and worships God together. That's the story. It's a story we see in the Old Testament, and we'll get to that in a moment, but it's also something we see throughout the New Testament. When you get to the very end of the Bible, what is the last scene? When God has made everything the way he wants it to be, do you see each individual on their own personal Caribbean island, worshiping God one-on-one and delighting it? No. You see a city people all around worshiping God in this massive community of love and interconnectedness, God is saving a people. That's what we see when the church starts. Think of the story of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes, Peter preaches, many people are saved, and what happens? They gather together and they're sharing things in one accord. They are a people. That's what God's salvation looks like. That's why Paul so regularly speaks of the body of Christ. And Peter, when we looked at, you know, 1 Peter last year, you might remember how he spoke. He said, you are a holy nation. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
The story of God's salvation is a story of God not just saving individuals, but bringing a new people together. And when we understand that story, that actually shapes, or it should shape, how we view ourselves and our lives. I remember one of the things that was most probably life-altering that was said to me during seminary was just this offhanded comment my theology professor said. He said, you know, most, time, most of the time people think that when they're going to church, that's to improve their personal relationship with Jesus and their own personal quiet times. But let me tell you, that's exactly the opposite way you should think of it. You are trying to grow individually. You are trying to have Bible time and, and praying individually so that you can strengthen the church. Because our identity is not just as individuals. We are a people that God has saved. That is fundamentally who we are. That's our story. Now, I don't know how, how much we really get that, how much at least the American church gets that. If you look at a lot of, of surveys that have been done as people are trying to understand how our culture is changing, you find that even though church attendance is decreasing, there's still a lot of people who say, yeah, I am for Jesus. I am committed to having a relationship with God. I'm just not interested in organized religion. In other words, I'm not interested in being a part of God's people. I don't really have any commitments to being part of God's people. That's, that's a sign of someone who has still gotten stuck in that story that doesn't recognize that God, when he is saving, he is saving a people. And so we want to spend time looking at the bigger story, not just the four spiritual laws, as helpful as they are, but what is really the story of salvation? And so a few weeks ago we began, we saw how in God's creation, things were the way they should be. And we really focused on three different components of God's people, that you know, we were whole in relationship with each other, in God's place. We were at home, in harmony, shalom, under God's rule, we knew God, God knew us, there was a perfect relationship. That is how things were meant to be, God's people in God's place under God's rule. And then we saw how everything was broken. All three of those was broken by sin. And then last week, we see God stepping in to redeem, and the way he steps in is through a promise. He tells Abraham, through you, I'm going to make a great people. I am going to give you my land, and I am going to be your God. He says, everything you've lost, my people and my place under my rule, I am going to give back to you. And really, if you want to understand what the first five books of the Bible are, which sometimes is called the Pentateuch or the Law of Moses, what they're about, it's really about those three things in turn. So really, the rest of Genesis is about how God establishes a people. The Exodus and Leviticus are about how God dwells with them and forms a relationship with them. And then finally, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's about how he brings them to a place. And so this morning, I want to consider just the first of those with you. We, we're going to be thinking about what, what we see in this story of how God forms a people. And let me just give you a heads up. As we now have moved beyond the opening chapters of Genesis and we're trying to go through the story of the Bible, we are not going to be able to dwell just on a couple of verses. It's going to be multiple chapters, even books of the Bible at the time. So when you have a scripture reading at the very beginning, while normally I like to kind of go through things almost like verse by verse, here those passages are going to be more like a sample or a, a representative of the larger story. And I'll be kind of working through the larger story with you when I'm preaching. And so this morning, as I said, what 
what we're going to be considering is this section of Genesis from Abraham until we get to Exodus. And it is a book, a part of the Bible that is all about God forming his people. You see that at the beginning, Genesis 12, the first thing God says to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. When we get to the end of Genesis, Exodus, those first few verses are kind of like the epilogue. What is the summary? What do we see in Exodus 1? Well, we've just heard it. Verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Do you understand what's being said here? God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And now Moses is recording, hey, guess what? That's exactly what happened. They were fruitful and they multiplied and they became numerous. God did what he said he would. And everything that happens in between that first promise in Genesis 12 and this statement in Exodus 1, or a huge amount of what happens in between, I should say, is about how God fulfills this promise and establishes his people. And here's what I hope we can gain from it. Because the thing is, when we're talking about the story of how God forms a people, this is not just an interesting Bible story. This is our story. This is the beginning of who we are, because we today continue to be that people that God formed where he began with Abraham. And what we will see as we are looking at this is we see our origin, we see what our identity is as God's people, and we see what our calling is as God's people. Let me go through each of those in turn. First, we, we see our origin, that who we are as God's people, we were made through God's miraculous grace. Last week we saw chapter 15. You might remember there's this certain moment where God takes Abraham out and has him look in the sky at nighttime and, and he sees all the stars and he tells Abraham, that's how many children you're going to have and children and great-grandchildren and so on. It says, Abraham believes. So what happens next? Well, even though Abraham believes, I think he's still a little confused. He doesn't know exactly how it's going to happen. And Sarah certainly is confused because at this point, both of them are in their 80s. So Sarah decides, you know, we're going to have to take this into our hands. God helps those who help themselves. Maybe that's what she was thinking. And so she said, I'm obviously way too old to have a baby. But I have a servant who is a childbearing age. Her name's Hagar. I want you to sleep with her. So Abraham does. And he gets Hagar pregnant. And she gives birth to a boy, Ishmael. And, and they must at that point go, problem solved. This is great. God said you're going to have a child. Here it is. Let's move on. So for the next 10 years, I think they're operating with that assumption that they have kind of figured out a way to make sure that God's promises will be fulfilled. But then God comes to them. Now they're almost 100. He says, Abraham, I am going to make of you a great nation. Through you, all the world will be blessed. And, and Abraham's thinking, yeah, and we have the beginning already. And, but, but God says, no, it's not going to be Ishmael. Your wife, Sarah, is going to have a child. And we're told Abraham laughs. And later on, Sarah laughs. And we get it. I mean, we talked about this last week. If you have parents or grandparents in their 80s, if they came to you one day and saying, we've decided that we're going to try to have a child, you would laugh too. But then just a couple of chapters later, just like God says he will, he comes to Sarah. It tells, it tells her that he visited Sarah as he promised. 
And, and Sarah conceived just as God promised. And she gave birth to a son named Isaac, which means laughter. Except this time when she's laughing, it's not because of the absurdity. She's laughing for sheer joy. This is how God's people really began. And let me say, perhaps to state the obvious, this is not just some accident on God's part. It wasn't like God suddenly looked at the watch. Oh, look at the time. There are already 100. I really should get on this. This is not what God was doing. This was God's intent from the beginning. Because what God wanted to do by starting his people this way is to reveal that his people are and always will be a people who are formed through his miraculous grace. Paul sees that clearly. He comments on it a few different times in his letters. In one point at Romans, he says about how Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead when it comes to childbearing. And yet where there was death, God brought life. That's the story of the people of God. That's your story. It doesn't matter whether you are three when you become a Christian or 33. It doesn't matter how aware you were when you came to faith or how much it was just this acceptance. Whatever your story is, you were born miraculously into God's people. You know, Scripture says that we, apart from Christ, were dead in our sins. We were utterly helpless. We were as good as dead. And then the resurrection power of Jesus entered our lives and changed us. Christ spoke into your heart, telling you that he is real, that he has died for you. And, and suddenly you believed, and you began to love him. Scripture says you were born again. You are a miracle. You know, we probably think of ourselves as this group in different ways. There's ways that might be positive. Oh, this is a really nice group of people, or wow, what a strange collection. Whatever your vision is, if you look around, here's something else that you should think. This, you are surrounded by miracles. Each person who knows Christ miraculously was brought into God's people. God established this church through his miraculous grace, because that's how God's people are formed. That's our origin story. Well, as we continue with the story of Isaac, um, there's, there's this period from the time like Isaac grows up until the very end of Genesis where it seems like all sorts of different things are going on. It's hard to kind of find what is the, the common thread. Well, let me tell you what I think the primary conflict is. Again and again in the chapters of Genesis after Isaac is born, you see this threat that the people around God's people are trying to take possession of them, trying to own them. I mean, you see this with Isaac and Rebecca. You might remember there's this one time where they're in a foreign area and Isaac says, Rebecca, pretend to be my sister because I know that you're really attractive. And his fear is that they will kill Isaac and take Rebecca as their own. And the moment that happens, God's people snuff out. Or a little bit later, you might remember Jacob. He runs away. He goes to crazy Uncle Laban. And what does Laban do? Laban seeks to entrap Jacob. You know, seven years if you want to marry this person. Oops, switcheroo. Seven more years. He tries to keep Jacob there forever. He's trying to take Jacob, make him in some ways his own, and that, that will cease 
bring to an end God's people. Because, because the identity of God's people is that they aren't anyone else's, they belong to God's. Chapters later, Jacob's daughter Dinah, someone who is local, forcibly takes her and seeks to have a family merger with their family and the family of Jacob. And again, the threat there is that the people who are supposed to belong to God's will suddenly be snuffed out and belong to another people. You get to Egypt, and there's the threat again. Egypt wants to take God's people and make them their own. Again and again, the story of Genesis is how God protects his people and makes sure they become and continue to always be his, no matter what the threat is that seeks to take them away. And that tells us something about our identity, that at the core of who we are, we are a people who belong to God. This is not just something that's true of the Old Testament. You know, the New Testament tells us that when Jesus came and died for us, he purchased us with his blood. That through our sin, through our rebellion, we had enslaved ourselves to sin and to Satan, and Jesus buys us back to make us his own. To be the people of God is to be a people who belong to him. That is what defines you and me. And just like in the day of Jacob and Isaac and Dinah, so also today there is a constant threat where the world around us seeks to take possession of God's people. We see this at a corporate level. We see this politically, I think it's fair to say. I mean, in this you know, politically toxic environment, it, it definitely seems like we see political parties seeking to gain the allegiance of the church, whether it's you know, the white evangelical church and the Republicans saying, you are ours, come with us, or whether it's the, the black church, oftentimes more the Democrats are saying, you are ours, come with us. Either way, the deal always seems to be, if you give allegiance to us, we will give you a position of influence and power. And really, that's just a variation of the temptation of Satan to Jesus, isn't it? Worship me and I'll give you everything. Of course, the moment that happens, we've lost because we lose ourselves, because we don't belong to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. We belong to God in Christ, and that's what defines us. It happens to us at an individual level, too. Your work seeks to own you. You probably know this. At some point, for at least many of you in the situations you're in, you've done the calculus and you realize if you really want to excel, if you really want to move up and gain promotions and gain people's respect, you need to give everything to your work. It seeks to own you, but if you let it, you will lose yourself because you don't belong to your work. You belong to God. Your desires, our desires seek to take possession of us might seem like a strange thing to say, but it is an easy thing to decide to give us, to give all of our lives, everything to trying to make ourselves happy. But I am not my own and you are not your own. And the moment you start thinking you are, you lose yourself. Because as God's people, we belong to him. 
We are surrounded by threats outside of us and even within us to try to take possession of us when we need again and again to hold on to our identity that I am not my own, but I belong to Christ. That's why monthly we confess what we confess this morning, that I am not my own, but in body and soul and life and death, I belong to Christ Jesus who loved me and gave his life for me. We need to do that together and remind each other so we can hold on to our identity. That's part of the reason we do what we do every week and come together. You know, all of us feel certain Sunday mornings when we've been up late the night before, that we're drowsy. It's like, do I really? Why do we need to do this every week? Well, here's one of the reasons why. Every time you come, every time you come out of bed and decide not to sleep in, you are declaring to yourself and to the world that my calendar is not my own. My calendar is not my works. My calendar does not belong to my vacation. My calendar belongs to Christ. Because of my allegiance to him, I will be there every week. This is why we give, one of the reasons, to declare to ourselves every time on Sunday morning when we're putting something in the offering plate or every time when our funds are transferred electronically from our bank accounts, we are declaring to ourselves and to those around us, I do not belong to my bank account. I do not belong to my wealth, but my wealth and myself belongs to Christ. We have practices that we need to hold on to so that we don't allow ourselves to be taken. So we don't lose ourselves, but we hold on to our identity. Friends, you and I together, we are not our own. We are God's people. Well, in this story of Genesis, we see the beginning through Isaac. We see the identity as they're fighting to not be taken. We see one other thing as well. We see the calling of God's people, our calling in this passage. You know, there's this repeated refrain that we find where in, I think it's chapter 17 and chapter 19 and a couple other places, we are told when, when the promises are made to Abraham, it says, I will bless you and through you I will bless the world. And again, I will bless you and through you I will bless all nations. And then again, he speaks to Isaac and says the same thing five different times when he promises that there will be a great people. He says, and through this, I will bless the world. And what we learn by that is that when God is establishing his people, he is not doing it because he's like, you know what? I'm tired of everyone else. Abraham, it's all up to you. I'm just going to be good to you. No, when he is blessing Abraham, it's for the sake of saving the entire world. And in the story of Genesis, we begin to see that taking place in the story of Joseph. Do you remember that story? I mean, just fast-forwarding through some of the early parts, we find Joseph in Egypt as a slave. And Pharaoh has this crazy dream. No one understands it, but Joseph is able to explain it. It says Joseph is given wisdom from God. And, and he is able to say, you know, here's what this story means, this dream. It's a dream saying that you're going to experience plenty for seven years, but then you're going to experience incredible famine, not just you, but the world around you. And when Pharaoh sees this, he says, is there any man like this in whom is found the Spirit of God? And so he puts Joseph over the whole project of dealing with this. And, and Joseph is given a wisdom, as he has been given the spirit, he is given a wisdom to make decisions. And because of the way that he is able to gather things during this time of plenty, when famine hits, 
It says the entire world comes to him looking for food. And he is able to give them. And it says, you have saved our lives. That's how God intended it. That he would bless his people. He gave wisdom to his people. And through this wisdom, the whole world was blessed. And that continues to be our calling. You know, when Jesus came and died and rose again, he did this to bless the world. And as he gathers his people, his disciples, he says, go, go into the world and bless them. Tell them about me. Make them my disciples. Tell them about how to live as my disciples. Go into the world and be a blessing. That's our calling today. And I was hearing uh, a few weeks ago Melinda Gates speak, and I was struck by just the clarity that she had about her life. She said, in essence, she feels like her entire life's calling for the rest of her life is to be spent figuring out how to give all of their wealth away to make the world a better place. And that's not a bad description of who you and I are called to be. We are people whose calling in this world is to spend all of our lives with all of the wealth that we have been given to serve, to bless the world around us. Because the reality is you and I are incredibly wealthy. The billions of dollars the Gates have does not compare to the wealth that you have because you have everything in Christ Jesus. You have God's smiling face upon you. The promise that he will always be with you. The promise that he will always hear and answer your prayers. You have a wisdom that is unlike the world around you. You have a hope and a certainty and a security. You have God's people and you have an inheritance that can never be taken away. You are wealthy. And your calling is to use all of your energy. Our calling as God's people is to use all of our energy together to seek to bless the world. This is why it's important to us that we understand how to speak of Jesus to the world around us because that's a crucial way of blessing people, to draw them to Christ. This is why we spend so much time talking about Haiti because God has given us an opening there where we can bring blessing. It's why we're so excited about world relief as refugees come to our very doorstep. Here is an opportunity God has given us to bless the world. It's why we want to talk so much about work, because when you are at work, you're not just doing that to get a living. You're doing that to bless the world around you. Our goal for this year, one of our two primary goals, is that each of us would be able to say with excitement and clarity, this is what it means for me to extend the transforming presence of Jesus. And that's just another way of saying, this is what it looks like for me to bless the world. Because that's the calling that we have been given, that we will be blessed, and through us as God's people, we will be a blessing to the world. Friend, do you realize who you are? You're not just a random individual that God happened to save. We collectively are God's people. We are a people who have been created through God's miraculous grace. We are a people whose identity is that we belong to God and we have a mission, a calling to bless the world. That is our story. In just a moment, we are going to be 
turning to the table, and this table reminds us of our story. Paul tells us that we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. As we come together around the table, we are celebrating the reality that we are God's saved people. But as we prepare our hearts for that, I'd like us just to take a couple minutes as we have been considering what God says about us to reflect and where we have seen in our own lives a failure to live out the reality as the people of God with a special calling of those who are supposed to belong to God, to use this time to reflect and to confess. And then I will lead us in a time of corporate confession a little while. So let's, let's spend a couple minutes just responding in silent prayer. I invite you to please join with me in where it's printed in the bulletin in this community confession of sin. Join with me where the print is bold. Heavenly Father, you have adopted us as your family. We are your people. We are the body of Christ. You have called us to be holy like you. You have sent us to be a blessing to this world together. We confess that we fall short of our sacred calling. We allow the values and habits of this world to turn us from you. We turn inward rather than giving ourselves in love to our neighbor. We even forget our identity as your people and live disconnected from each other. Please forgive us. Lord, by the power of your spirit, unite us and renew us through Christ, that we may, as your church, bring glory to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel from Jeremiah 33. God says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Hear the good news. In Jesus Christ, your sin against God is forgiven. Thanks be to God.